Well, if you go ahead and find a Bible or turn to the Bible on your device, uh, you find the text we're looking at on page 900 in the church Bibles. And uh, we've just been singing about how love shows that we're His disciples, and that's deliberate. We structure our worship services to try and emphasize uh, the same message throughout the morning. And so we're going to turn now to that part of the story in John's Gospel where Jesus teaches us about that. And um, you want to remember the context. Um, So the context is the disciples. Here's the picture you want to have in your mind as we hear the Bible read. The disciples are all gathered. It's an intimate gathering. Uh, they're gathered around the table, as it were, at the Last Supper, okay? So they're eating together, they're talking together. And as we saw last week, there is this drama that's taking place. So Judas, who of course is the betrayer, has just left. And John emphasizes the drama of that by saying it was night. And now, of course, hanging in the air in the story is, what will Jesus do? I mean, what would you do if your friend had just left to betray you? What would he say? What would he do? Well, let's find out. John chapter 13 and verses 31 to 35. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is God's word. Amen. Well, I suppose hardly any of us would say that love is a bad thing, right? We value love. We appreciate love. More than that, it's one of those words, those ideas uh, that we hold in very high esteem. We should be kind to each other. We should tolerate each other. We should love each other. So not only would none of us say that love is a bad thing, I suppose just about everyone today would say that love is a good thing, a very good thing. It's the highest thing. And yet, even though we write songs about it, um, make T-shirts with slogans about it, put Slogans on our Instagram feed with pictures behind the words to indicate how much we believe in love. And even though that sort of thing takes place, even though that's the case, we also live in a world where there is great friction, where there's a lot of anger, politically, culturally. And and, and let's be fair, 
the church, even though it's received words like the ones we just read out, the church at large is not always as loving a place as it should be. So how, how is that the case? How is it that we have, on the one hand, this high ideal that everyone would say, yeah, we should love each other, of course, but on the other hand, we find it very difficult to do. And how do we bridge that gap? Well, I think that this passage here not only tells us to love each other, it shows us how, and uh, in, three verse, in three ways. So uh, it's, it's radical, so there's a radical aspect we've got to get our minds around what Jesus is teaching, otherwise we won't bridge that gap. It's radical. It's new, so we think we've heard it all before, but really we haven't. There's something new here. And it is also attainable. That is, it can be like so hard. How on earth are we ever going to do that? But actually it is attainable. And we'll talk about that lastly. So radical, new, attainable. Radical. The radical aspect begins in the first three verses of the passage that we just read out. And it begins when Jesus says, um, now, now. He is glorified. Now I am glorified. This is when he is glorified. And then he turns to his disciples, his little children. Actually, the, 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 word, the, the phrase there, little children, the word behind that is the sort of thing that a father would say at Passover when he gathered with his family, his children. He would speak to them say, little children. And Jesus is using uh, that term, for the first time in John's Gospel, though John picks up on it and uses it in his writings later, little children. And then Jesus tells them, in essence, that they cannot follow him to the cross. That's what Jesus is saying. Uh, and when he talks about being glorified, he's referring to his soon coming death on the cross. And he says to his little children, you can't follow me there. Why? Because that's something I have to do. You can't do it. I am going to do it. And I'm going to do it for you. Now, as I say, this is radical, but I don't think we really understand exactly how radical it is. But we need to, it will become plain, I hope, as we think about it a little bit. So what Jesus is saying is that the glory of God is shown in this most unlikely of places on the cross. That's where the glory of God is shown. Now, let's think what that means. So what is glory and what is God's glory? Here's one definition. God's glory is the visible presence of God. So sometimes um, Jonathan Edwards said that uh, the glory of God and the name of God are often used for the same thing. That is, God's glory is God showing up. It's the visible presence of God. It's God manifesting his presence. It's the glory of God. So, in a little survey of the Bible, the Bible tells us that God's glory was shown when God rescued his people from Egypt. He showed up, his visible presence. Tells us that God's glory was shown in brilliant fire on the mountain when God's law was given to his people. This blazing, scary, frightening fire on the mountain. God's glory. It tells us also that God's glory was in the tent in the wilderness when God's people were wandering the desert. And in some sense we're told that God dwelt among his people in that tent. He showed up. And uh, God's glory uh, was at the beginning of the temple that Solomon built. And then Isaiah saw Jesus' glory in that temple and spoke of him, uh, uh, spoke of Jesus, John tells us in this gospel. And as John said at the beginning of this gospel in chapter 1, God's glory is dwelling in Jesus. Now that word dwelling 
refers back to that temple and that tent where God in the Old Testament was said to dwell. So John is saying, finally and fully, all that, all that temple dwelling, that tent dwelling is now finally and fully completed in that glory that indwells Jesus. He is the avenue to get to God. He is the temple. God's glory dwells in Jesus. Right, all that's background. But now, radically, as I say, astonishingly, Jesus tells us that the glory of God is revealed as he is betrayed. As he goes to the cross. As he gives his life in love for his little children. That's where God ultimately shows up. This really is where the glory is. In self-giving love for other people, Jesus ultimately showed it. Now, you see, before we can even get our minds around what's new about this commandment, and there is something new about it, before we can figure out then how to follow it, for this new commandment is attainable too, we need to get our minds around how glory is being redefined by the cross of Jesus. It's... Otherwise, we won't, we won't really buy in to what Jesus is saying. You see, what often stops us, I think, living a life of self-sacrificial love, for that, of course, is what Jesus is calling us to, what often stops us is that we don't think it's a very glorious thing to do. We think that if we gave our lives in self-sacrifice, then somehow we would miss out on the glory. That, they don't give trophies for self-sacrifice, do they? Really? We know we're meant to love each other, we've heard that before, so we'll love each other a little bit, we'll go through the motions, we'll be friendly, we'll be nice. But we won't live lives of sacrificial love until we come to the grips of the truth that Jesus here fully embodied, which is that radically the glory of God is shown most of all in self-giving Love for others. That's where the glory is. So when we think of um, you know loving other people, we we come up with some sort of familiar illustrations, don't we? Um, you know, the father who spends more time with his children than with his own career, the mother who gives up a career to raise her children, the brother who allows his brother to play with his toys. You, you know. The boss who refuses a pay rise for himself to ensure that his employees are paid what they deserve. You know, good things. Uh, The student who works all his free time for college tuition because his family cannot afford it. Good things. But the real challenge is for the radical truth of this to penetrate. To penetrate us as a church and us as individuals. Be transformative for college church if it does, I think. How are we going to do that? Well, here's a tool that I recommend to you that I think will help you. Sometime uh, this afternoon on your device or a piece of paper, if you still prefer analog as I do sometimes, write down a list of your attainments, your achievements, the things that you've done that you feel pretty good about, the kind of thing you put on your resume. Spend about five minutes doing that. Write them down. Here, I feel good about that. I did this. I did that. And then compare that 
that glory with how Jesus defines glory. Uh, Jesus uh, spent time with his disciples. He, he invested in them relationally, personally. He discipled them. He cared for them. He taught them. His glory, his resume, if you like, his CV, was all about giving himself for others, ultimately at the cross. And so, therefore, the extent to which God will be glorified in us as a church, as as Cottage Church, as God's people, as individuals, the extent to which God is glorified in us will be the extent to which we give our lives for other people. That's where the glory is. Particularly other people in the church. The little children of God's family in the local church. So as I say, the question is, how does my resume, your resume, or CV, compare to that standard of where the glory really is, and what then can I do to ensure that going forward I am investing in the glory that radically lies at the cross? And so to answer that question, we come then to what is new. So we've had what's radical, here's what's new, this new commandment. And uh, this question, these questions lead us then to this new commandment. Having been challenged by the radical example of this glory that Jesus is modeling, we are then shown the new commandment that we're to follow as a result. This is verse 34. And uh, at one level, it's very familiar, but actually it isn't. It's new. And we need to see why. So a new commandment, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, Jesus says this is new, but what on earth is new about this? Surely we've heard this before. Surely everyone says it's a good idea to love. I mean, doesn't the Old Testament say that? It does. The Old Testament tells us to love people. In fact, Jesus, when he summarizes the law that is taught in the Old Testament, says that it is to love your neighbor as yourself and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It is love that summarizes the Old Testament teaching. Surely this is not new. What is more, taking it outside of the context of the Bible and thinking about things within what other moral teachers say, what other philosophies say, what other religions say, surely don't they all say love? I mean, even the Beatles say all you need is love, right? What's new? Well, what's new is the new standard and the new power. So whereas the standard of the law told us to love our neighbor as ourselves, Jesus gives us a new commandment to love each other as he has loved us. That is, the standard now is to love one another self-sacrificially. We're not meaning to love each other as we love ourselves. We are to put others in the Christian family, in the church, above ourselves. We're to follow Jesus' example of love. For he was glorified at the cross where he loved us self-sacrificially. And that then is the kind of love that we are to have. A love that is not just loving people as ourselves, but loving people 
like Christ loved us. Our love is not to be then self-shaped anymore, but to be cross-shaped. This is new. It's a new and, when we think about it, a very, very high standard. In fact, it is so high, the question is, has anyone ever really lived up to what Jesus is telling us to do here? And the answer to that is yes. Um, An early church apologist called Tertullian describes the early Christians in the Roman amphitheater. There they are, about to be eaten by lions, but rather than hide behind each other, they are protecting one another. And Tertullian tells us those watching them in that amphitheater, about to be eaten by lions, said this, how they love one another. They are even willing to die for each other. Such love has a power to it. It points to something beyond the individual. It is something extraordinary. It is said that those early Christians actually literally jumped in front of each other to take the lion's attacks to try to save their brothers and sisters behind. There is no doubt that sometimes the church has lived up to this new standard. But then we have to be honest, don't we, that there are other times the church has manifestly failed to live up to what Jesus is saying. And not just in recent times, also in ancient times. A little time after Tertullian, a famous preacher called Chrysostom complained at length how the Christians in his day were no longer loving each other as those early Christians had loved each other. So again, closing the gap. What is the secret to this love, to obeying this new commandment? It comes down to realizing that in the new commandment, this new standard, in the new commandment, there is also a new power. Jesus is not commanding us to do something without the resources to do it. He says we are to love each other as he has loved us. He does not say loves us, he said loved us, meaning the once for all finished work of Christ on the cross. So his love for us now that he communicates to us by his Holy Spirit comes as we rely upon his finished work on the cross. In other words, the power for us to love each other comes from receiving anew what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, by the way, this is why it is always a mistake to interpret what Jesus is saying here, as many people have down through history and in recent times, as to mean that we should not have any doctrine or teach the Bible. Oh, see, all you need is love. See, Jesus teaches that. Jesus said it. You don't need doctrine. No, he did not say it. What we learn here about love comes from the Bible. This love is a doctrine that Jesus is teaching us in the Bible. And so focusing on love cannot mean then jettisoning or removing or forgetting or downgrading a high view of Scripture or a commitment to the truth of the gospel. In fact, the reverse. If we want to love as Jesus loved us, then we need his power to do so. 
And that means we need to reflect upon, grow in, realize more the truth of what He has done for us. The extent of our love for others will be measured by and indeed magnified by, empowered by, the extent of our realization and experience of what God has done for us on the cross. We love others as He has loved us. There is a connection, a source, a resource, a reservoir of love and the love of Jesus expressed for us at the cross. And I think it could be shown down through history. The extent to which the church has forgotten the finished work of Christ on the cross will be the extent to which it forgets how to love. For we love as he has loved us. Our ability to love others, even annoying others, even difficult other people, even people who are older than us or younger than us or from a different background to us. Our ability to love others will be enabled by our grasp of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And therefore the solution to closing this gap, this gap, the solution to growing in our love for each other, fulfilling the stipulation of this new commandment is to receive the new power that Jesus came to give when he died on the cross that comes from what Jesus has completed. The more we think that Christianity is just another religion, the less we love each other in the unique way that reflects the unique love of Jesus at the cross. The more we think of Christianity as just a list of rules, of do's and don'ts, a moralistic system, the less we will love each other in this new way for the love that Jesus wants us to have for each other now is fueled by how Jesus loved us at the cross then. So if you are struggling to love someone, another Christian, someone in your small group, an adult or your adult community, or even your own family, physical family, think on the cross of Jesus. And don't just think on it, but receive anew from what Jesus did on that cross, his love for you. Now, how do you do that? Here are three ways. Number one, tell someone about the cross. There's perhaps no greater way to realize again how amazing it is what Jesus did for you than to tell someone else who has not yet realized it. Children are never prouder of their parents than when they tell someone else how great their dad is. Tell someone about what Jesus did, number one. Number two, ask Jesus to show you what he did for you, to show you what he did for you. You know, when you go to a doctor and you need surgery and you have surgery, you can think to yourself, it's done, it was easy. But if you saw a video of what your surgeon actually did, you would have a new appreciation. Ask Jesus to show you what he saved you from. Number three, take the time to put it in your own words, what Jesus did on the cross. It's one thing to hear what someone else has to say about the cross. It's another thing to write it down for yourself. Try typing a paragraph that expresses what Jesus did on the cross. Put it in your own words. Research has shown over and over again that when we write something out, it imprints on our mind. Try writing out for yourself what Jesus did for you. 
For, you see, your love for others is a reflection of what Jesus has done for you and your, your understanding and experience and appreciation of what he has done for you. Our growth and obedience to this new commandment will be fueled by a growing experience of his new covenant love for you finished at the cross. So we close this gap between our wanting to love and our actual practice of love by realizing that what Jesus is saying is radical. This is where the glory is. It's new. It's a new standard and there's a new power. But finally, we also see, though, it is actually attainable, this high standard, this great new commandment, or at least we can take steps in the right direction. So Jesus concludes uh, his teaching on this love for one another in verse 35 by saying that, By this, this is Jesus now speaking, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now what kind of phrase is this? What kind of construction is this sentence? Well, what we have here is a promise. People will know you are my disciples with a condition, if. So he says, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a promise with a condition. And because Jesus promised that people will know that we're his disciples, the end result is attainable. Jesus promised it. But there is a condition if you have love for one another. And therefore, to meet this condition is extremely important. It is critically significant. In some ways, the stakes could not be higher, the significance could not be greater. For the way that people will know that we are following Jesus is by our love for each other. Perhaps you are not yet a Christian. Perhaps someone invited you to church this morning. Well, the Bible elsewhere teaches that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So it is imperative, if you wish to have faith, that you listen to God's word as it is preached. But here, this morning, we're looking at where the Bible also teaches us, as we are seeing this morning, that love is a way that people like you will know that we are following Jesus. And so we pray we'll be drawn to follow Jesus too. Note the things that Jesus did not say. He did not say, all people will know you are my disciples if you come up with the right strategy. Not that the right strategy is unimportant by any means, but Jesus did not say that. Jesus also did not say, all people will know you are my disciples by your technological innovation. Not that technological innovation is unimportant. It is very important. We live in an age of technological revolution. The the smartphone is is a revolutionary piece of technology. Churches must be on the cutting edge of using digital to reach the world, just as the reformers were on the cutting edge of using the printing press, we should use the best technology to reach people today. Technology matters hugely. Strategy matters massively. But Jesus did not point to those things. He pointed to something else. Something else that is, while indeed challenging, also attainable. That is, it is within the reach of every single one of us. None of us is too big or too small to be able to learn more about what it means to love each other. This is something we can all grow in. And as we do, it will make a huge difference to how people perceive not just us as a church, 
but who it is that we're following. Um, a few years ago or so, Rochelle and I invited someone to come to church. And uh, she came, and then, you know, as you do afterwards, we said, you know, what did you think? What, 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 what was the experience like for you? you know, what was it like? And uh, we'll never forget what this person said. She looked at us and said, it was warm. She didn't mean that we got the heating right that Sunday. She'd been observing the way that people interacted with each other. The way they cared for each other. There was a palpable warmth. That's what church is meant to be like. And Jesus is saying, when you are like that, people will look for an explanation. Why? What's going on? Now, of course, there are other clubs and societies that take care of each other. You can go to the golf club and have someone know your name and take your coat for you. You, you, you can go to the gym and work out with your gym buddies and have, have a good time and, and, and cheer each other on to lose weight or get even bigger muscles or whatever it is. You can even have your own physical family be a caring and supportive place. But all these community dynamics of care have other possible explanations. We can explain why families look after each other. It's because they have a genetic basis to protect their gene pool and provide a safe space for their young to grow up and thrive. You you don't want to annoy mama or papa bear when they're trying to protect their children. You can see it in any society. You can see it even among some animals. Similarly with gyms and golf clubs. I mean, it's nice to be known and to have a place where people are friendly, but I mean, come on, you're paying your dues and the staff are being paid to be friendly. They'd be fired if they weren't friendly to you. Even real deep friendships, as precious as they are, even that can be explained on merely human terms after all every society has friendships and some societies well they actually do it much better than our society does I I lived for a while in a country where if someone ever came late for a meeting you know sitting there the meeting starts at three o'clock and they they rocked up at 345 or something and you look at them and say well you know what have you been doing And, and they would say my friend needed me First time I was at a meeting when someone said that, I looked around the room and thought, well, that's no excuse. Get here on time. But then I looked around that room. I noticed everyone else just immediately went, got it. Your friend needed you. Of course. Friendships are important. Precious. But friends care for each other because they have a mutual arrangement to do so. 
You can have a friend for a season and then another friend for a different season. Even neighbor love and being neighborly has a reciprocal nature to it. Love each other as you want to be loved. It's not quite just you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, but there's always an element of that kind of reciprocal thing going on. But this love, this love is of another kind. It is not based upon what you can do for me. It is based upon what Jesus has done for me. How else can you explain it? That is the question that is inevitably raised when Christians start to grow in loving each other. Why? 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 Why would someone go out of the way to visit a, a sick person who they don't know and they have no family connection to? Why? Why would someone give their precious time to mentor a person, disciple them, help them get through life and answer their difficult questions when they have no family, no friendship relationship to them and they get pretty much nothing in return? Why? Why would someone love a person who is of a different tribe to them, a different background from them, by uh, listening to that person, helping them find a seat, letting that person go first in line? Why? I mean, you can find other societies, of course, that are not all like pigs jostling to get their snouts into the trough first, but, but, but there's usually a quid pro quo, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours element to it somewhere. The church? Jesus commands us to be much more than that. He commands us on the basis of what he has done for us. Reflect on that and its glory. The radical nature of where God is glorified, where the glory is, receive that love and to love others in the power of that love and in obedience to Jesus' new, new commandment. And as we do, if we do, this attainable thing, not fancy, not expensive, Not clever, not sophisticated, but personally costly. If we do that, everyone will know there can be only one explanation. Those college church people, they follow Jesus. Well, then, how do we put love like this into practice? Let me leave you with three action steps to move you forward and then a final illustration.
First step, think. <laughs> so, you know, here you are, you've heard the sermon about loving people in the church and you, you know, right afterwards you walk out of the sanctuary, you walk out of the church and you see that face of that person who really annoys you. Now, I know none of you find anyone else here annoying at all, but just in case some of you do, right? Think. Think to yourself, as Jesus loved me, so I love you. In other words, let your thought life about other people be shaped by the cross, by what Jesus has done for you. Think. Second action step, invest. Invest in the church your time and talent and treasure. Jesus is not, in this text, talking about love for everyone. He's talking about love for each other in the family of the church. Invest here. For instance, find time to mentor someone. Read the Bible with uh, someone one-to-one over breakfast or coffee. Invite someone around to your home. You know, Jesus spent so much of his life just with the disciples, teaching them, encouraging them. You, you, you invite someone to your home. Your house does not have to be perfect. Your apartment does not have to be perfect or even especially tidy and neat and fancy. It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to stop everything you're doing to be hospitable. Just bring them into your life. The Apostle Paul said he delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but his life as well. In love, let us share our lives with each other. Look out particularly for new people. I know, I know, sometimes we're not sure whether a person is new or not. You go up to someone and you say, are you new? And you find out they've been coming for 50 years or something. Go up to someone you don't recognize, off your hand to shake and say something like, Hi, my name is, and then they'll tell you your, their name, maybe again. And you get a conversation going in one way or another. I, I, I don't know. Ask them what they think of how the bulls are doing this year. That should get a conversation going. Start out easy and begin to invest your life in people to love them. So think Invest. Third step, receive. (laughs) So easy, isn't it, when we think about loving other people, to always think that we're the one who has to be doing it rather than the one who's receiving it. To develop a sort of Messiah complex where we've got to save everyone. Receive. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to receive. Accept help if you need it. Let someone tell you something and not assume you've heard it all before. To be teachable. Learn from people younger than you. You know, if you don't learn from people younger than you, what's going to happen as you get older is you'll have fewer and fewer people to learn from. Receive from the younger generations. Baby boomers, receive from Gen X. I know they're annoying, but receive from them. And I say that as a Gen X guy, you know. Gen X, receive from millennials. I know you find them annoying, but they find you far more annoying. (laughs) 
Millennials receive from Gen Z or whatever the right letter is for the generation that is growing up now. So as we think, invest, receive, more and more we'll have the kind of love, radical, this is where the glory really is, new, new standard, new power, attainable, not clever, not sophisticated, but costly, but anyone can do it that Jesus commanded. Any Christian can do it. Here then is the final illustration. Um, This summer, uh, which seems like a long time ago these days, but this summer, before we entered into the um, six months of darkness that is winter in Chicago, (laughs) outside of our house, a bird built a nest and in it soon enough there were some little baby birds they they actually built the nest uh, low enough down so that we could look in and watch uh, the mother and father birds feed their young well the moment came from when they had to fly away and eventually they flew the nest Through the whole process, the mother and father bird looked completely exhausted, bedraggled. Eventually, some of the baby birds will grow up and do the same thing. Somewhat similarly, Jesus gave his life for his little children. And the time will come when they will do the same for each other. They need to look out for each other. They're in this together. They must stick together. And as they do, if they do, Everyone will know that they are his disciples. Well, we're going to stand now to sing our last hymn, which echoes uh, this message. Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together. Let's stand together and sing. It's a great last song. Let's sing it loudly, rejoicingly. It is good. This is where the glory is, self-sacrificial love for each other in the church. Let's stand to sing. I'm going to pray as we are standing, and then um, Josh and the team will lead us in worship. So let's, let's pray. Let's pray together before we sing. Our Lord God, um, we do ask that you would help us, therefore, to love as you have loved us. And to do that, Lord, we ask that we will receive from you again that power that comes from that cross, your finished work on the cross. And we pray, Lord, that we would be the kind of people that when we'd be the kind of church that when people come in, they would say, well, they love each other. And then they'd think, where does that come from? And realize it comes from you. Make us more and more like that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.